So we turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Um, do you want the uh, Do you want the two-hour sermon today, or you want an hour today, an hour next week? No. Uh, uh, just, so I, I think this will probably be uh, at this time the last sermon out of uh, Revelation 20 because there have been some other thoughts that have uh, kind of come to mind that I want to bring to you uh, in the next couple of weeks. I'll go ahead and give you some homework. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 17. Well, First Samuel 17 is about David and Goliath. It's really about him. But once you get into the last few verses of 17 and you start in uh, chapter 18, through the remainder of 1 Samuel, you have David's interaction with King Saul. Um, so if you want to read ahead uh, into 1 Samuel uh, 18 through the remainder of the chapter, um, I'd like to bring some thoughts over the next few weeks concerning David's interaction uh, with King Saul. I think the lessons uh, there will be profitable to all of us at this time. There's some of that within that uh, interaction between David and Jonathan. I won't really be focusing much on that, so in your reading, if, if you choose to skip the David and Jonathan portion, um, it probably won't do any harm to what we'd like to bring to you about David and Saul. Um, but at any rate, that's... that's uh, I tell you that too, because I think some of that idea kind of ties into what we'd like to talk about today. The fact that um, we've got ideas for the future. We all have ideas for the future in general. And we have the opportunity to uh, try uh, and bring those things to pass. Um, that's kind of a benefit uh, of life that we have, is that not only do we have an existence, but we have uh, a hope for future things and an ability uh, with God's help to bring those things to pass. Uh, in Revelation 20, though, we'd like to entitle the message today, Into Eternity, because that's really kind of where we're at with this portion of Scripture. Um, we've discussed a little bit about what possibly the thousand-year reign is, uh, the first resurrection, um, specifically noting that this chapter lays out the defeat of the devil and the triumph of the righteous. That, that's ultimately what the last, uh, specifically the last three chapters of Revelation are about, and the Bible as a whole is ultimately about the defeat of Satan and the triumph of the righteous. Um, we, also, we also want to remind everybody that when, we're, when you're reading Revelation, when you're reading about future events and unfulfilled prophecy, it's very difficult for mortal creatures such as us to try and tell you what the future is going to be like. Uh, I still, I think very much about uh, the statement that was quoted in Hassel's history by uh, Mr. Charles Hodge in that the events of the last day and the events of the second coming of Christ uh, may be a great disappointment to commentators. Um, it may happen in a completely different way than we all have even imagined. But for the righteous, 
we will not be disappointed as a whole. We will be very grateful when Christ comes back. Now, anybody who, well, I struggle with saying the term anybody and everybody. Um, that's, that's a broad term that in a congregation with people who, for the most part, agree with me, we can use the words anybody and everybody, nobody objects. But if I was on a debating stage with somebody who very much disagreed with me, to use the term anybody and everybody and all, um, I would kind of be tying myself into a knot because you don't allow uh, errors in either direction when you say the words all, any, and everybody. So may I say the word most people that attend a Christian church or have some concept of heaven understand that when the righteous get there or whoever gets to heaven, it's going to be a joyful time. There seems to be no doubt about that. Now, what kind of joyful time is it? That's going to vary based on the people that you talk to. Um, it, it, as we've pointed out before, it's very interesting that people who've never mentioned the word God, they've never mentioned the name of Christ, they don't say anything in their music or in their uh, movies about how much they love God. As soon as they die, wow, heaven must be a beautiful place with this person and that person. And I'm like, they never even said anything about Christ. Matter of fact, some of them have even said things against Christ. So the very idea that just because somebody dies now, all of a sudden we're, we're focused on heaven is kind of peculiar to me. People don't care anything about God while we're living here on this earth. As soon as somebody dies, first thing we do, put them right into heaven, this glorious place. Um, that's not exactly how the Bible plays all of this out. We understand, though, in this congregation, one of our articles of faith is that the uh, existence of the righteous will be everlasting, and it will be everlasting joy. I don't necessarily think it's going to be a place uh, a lot like Dixie. Hank Williams, Jr. saying, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I just assume stay home. No, I hope heaven's a lot better than Dixie. Uh, I don't think, though, it's going to be the place where you can uh, bag the biggest deer you've ever hunted for. I don't think it's going to be the place where you can catch the biggest fish you've ever fished for. I don't think it's going to be the place where you throw every touchdown that you've ever wanted to throw. I don't think it's going to be anything like that. But then I've never been there. But I do know someone who has been there. And he didn't tell us that it was going to be like that. But we do know this, in the presence of God will be joy everlasting. We know that. Um, however, for <laughs> what little time we've got left, good gracious, uh, we won't focus so much on the joys of the righteous because we take that, let's just take that as a truth, that the existence and joy of the righteous or the existence of the righteous will be everlasting, never-ending, completely joyful, and nothing like what we've got down here. What are we going to do with the wicked, though? Now, I, this, this subject is an interesting subject when you start talking about um, the, the destiny of the wicked. Not a lot of this is preached in our churches. Now, for one reason, I'm not part of the devil's family. So I don't care much about where he came from, and I don't care much about where he's going. We focus on what's important to our family. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness. But for today's sermon, 
for today's message when we're looking in Revelation 19:20 and then one verse in 21. We'll be heavy-handed today on what we believe will be the eternal destiny of the wicked. I believe that hell is real. I believe that hell will be populated. I don't necessarily believe it will be populated more than heaven, but I do believe it will be populated. It'll be a place of fire, darkness, and eternal torment. There will be people there who know they're there. They know why they're there. But part of their problem in hell is that they have no purpose. This is what we talked about just a little bit earlier. I'm telling you what we are thinking about doing here for our sermons the next couple of weeks. We have expectations in our life. We have anticipation in our life. And we have a way to sometimes bring that about. And those expectations give us a sense of purpose. And without a sense of purpose in life, as a lot of people get discouraged and cast down and depressed, and um, it, life is, is a bit of a torment to them. The people in hell, part of their torment is they have no purpose. The people in heaven... Part of their joy is they know what their purpose is. And their purpose is always fulfilling. You ever worked a garden? You had purpose. But it wasn't always a joyful purpose. Tomato plants didn't always produce. Corn didn't always produce. Tomato hornworms come up and mess up everything. Uh, It's a mess sometimes. In heaven, the joy will be an ending that will be purpose and it will be delightful purpose. Um, before we get into uh, Revelation 20, I want to turn back to uh, the book of Genesis. <clears throat> and uh, if time permit, we will again turn back to some of this possibly. Um, but I'd like you to notice in, in Revelation 20, um, <clears throat> I say that we here believe in what did I say? Revelation twenty, Genesis twenty. Did I say Genesis twenty? Okay, the twentieth chapter of Genesis. Just to make some comments here, and then we'll turn back to the twentieth chapter of Revelation. Right, day in the morning. Wow. Um. So we believe that the torment of the wicked will be everlasting. Um, There is a belief out there and a doctrine out there called annihilationism. And the doctrine of annihilationism is when the wicked get to hell, fire will be so hot, it will be like dropping a piece of paper in a fire. The paper will burn and be consumed and disappear. Annihilationism teaches that the wicked who have not been saved when God drops them in hell will burn and disappear. They'll just be erased from human history. Now, there's not a lot of people that believe that. There are two main groups that believe that. Seventh-day Adventists believe it and Jehovah's Witnesses believe it and then some other splinter groups around that believe that. If I was Arminian trying to get people... Saved by their works, you know, you've got to have faith, you've got to believe, you've got to be baptized. That would be the last doctrine that I would hold to. 
Because it does, number one, it doesn't make any sense. But number two, I know plenty of people who don't care whether they live after they die or not. I, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who say, you know what, I, I don't care what I do after I die. This world is so terrible and so horrible. I, I'm just happy for it. I, I'm glad for it to all be over. Second, where's the punishment if someone is annihilated? Well, they're punished for a little bit, but but the Bible talks about everlasting punishment. Well, it's everlasting in the fact that when the piece of paper is burned up, it's never coming back, so it's everlasting destroyed. Hold on. Not exactly what the word destroyed means. We'll get to that in, in a second. But the reason I've turned to, to Genesis 20, Genesis 20, Genesis 20. The reason I've turned to Genesis 20 is it's right on the hills of uh, Genesis 19. Right. And what happens in Genesis 19? In Genesis 19 is the overthrow of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is told by God, God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy this wicked city. And Abraham remembers he's got a nephew down there named Lot. And he implores the Lord, hey, if there are 50 righteous in the city, will you spare the city? Absolutely. If there's 45 righteous, will you spare the city? Maybe that's too many. If there's, he, gets, he whittles this thing all the way down to 10. And come to find out, there's really only one. He whittles it down to ten and says, if, if there are ten righteous, will you spare the city? And God says, I'll spare the city. And there's really only one righteous there, which is Lot. God rains down fire out of heaven and burns up the city. Abraham, it's, it's told to us in Genesis 19 and verse 27 that Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as a smoke of a furnace. It came to pass that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. As, as the gospel of grace, do not skip over that verse. As the gospel of grace, that right there is the crux of our entire message. That is an explanation of everything that we believe. Let's go back and read that one more time. And it came to pass when God destroyed the world that God remembered Christ and sent you out of the midst of the overthrow. How about that? You like that version? Who cared more about Lot's salvation, Lot or God? God cared more about Lot's salvation than Lot did. Go back and read the story. It's written there for, it's written there for you to learn. I don't think Abraham had ever seen a sight quite like this. Abraham never had woken up and seen the fire of an entire city coming up before him. He has no idea, though. Lot has no idea. Uh, Abraham has no idea what God has done for Lot. Where Lot is, Abraham does not know. 
So then you find Abraham in Genesis 20. This is where he journeys down and he gets around Abimelech, king of Gerar, and he tells this king Abimelech, Sarah's my sister. Abraham gets himself in a, in a pretty pathetic position right here. And it's very possible that he sort of loses faith, he loses focus in life, he loses determination because of what he's just seen. So I've said all this to set up this statement, that I believe that the vast majority of people who object to an eternal hell do so not out of biblical principle, but simply out of emotion and sympathy. Some have said, that doctrine is too terrible. It cannot be true. Surely God is such a loving and kind God that he would not allow anyone to suffer for eternity. Well, that's not a biblical statement. That's an emotional statement. That's a, that's a statement made not of biblical truth, but of human sympathy. And then someone comes up and says, well, I, I just I can't see why God would. If I was a God, I wouldn't do that. If, if I was God, I wouldn't. I would have mercy and I would do this and I would do that. And what you really are saying is you'd be a better deity than the deity himself. And that's the pride of human beings, is it not? That if we were God, we would be a better God than God himself. Which is why Jesus Christ had to come and suffer for pathetic statements like that. If we had in our mind the mind of Christ, we would be able to say that when we get to heaven, we might would be more surprised that there's anybody there than be sad that there's anybody in hell. We will view things the way God views them. We will know why there's a hell. We will know why people are there. We will know they deserve to be there. And had it not been for the blood of Christ, we would deserve to be there too. And we would be satisfied with what God has done. So, uh, in Revelation 20, if, if I was someone who did not believe in uh, <clears throat> the everlasting existence uh, of the soul, if I was somebody that, that didn't believe uh, that there was a hell and that hell was full of people, I would not turn to Revelation 20. I wouldn't turn to any part of Revelation and read about this. Um, <clears throat> let's notice here. <clears throat> Revelation 19 and verse 20. Revelation 19 and verse 20. It says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So, this, this phrase is going to keep coming up, this lake of fire that burns with brimstone. But I'd like you to notice here, it says these that were cast in there were cast in alive. 
So they had an existence. Now, here's here's another little concept about this. Is that people often say, well, once somebody dies, they cease to exist. Here's the problem with that. Life does not dictate existence. Life does not dictate existence. Something does not have to be alive to exist. This pulpit is not alive. And yet it exists, does it not? Rocks are, they they exist. They're not alive. Lots of things in life exist, but are not alive. These were cast, though, alive. They completely existed and are aware of who they are and were cast into the lake of fire. Now, I'd like you to notice as we read this next description about this, here's what happened to those who were cast into the lake of fire. This is uh, Revelation 20, verse 10. Now, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, cast the same place as the beast and the false prophet. And notice what it says here. Where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. They shall be tormented when they get there. Day and night. Now you say, is there a day, is there a 24-hour span of time that we're understanding? No, John is not writing that it's a 24-hour span of time, Monday, Tuesday. He's saying, in our understanding, day and night, Day and night is a continual existence. There's no break of this, in other words, what we're saying here. And by the way, John is laying out here that when people get to hell, Satan is not going to be sitting on the throne as the ruler of hell. Satan is in hell, being tormented by the one who sits on the throne in heaven. He's the one, the one in heaven, God Almighty, is the one who's tormenting the devil in hell. He's the one in charge of this. So, the beast, the false prophet, and the devil are cast alive into hell, tormented day and night. Um, Verse 14 says that death and hell were cast in the lake of fire, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, Now, we're talking about human beings here. Those who are not written in the book, uh, book of life, they're now joining the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. And they will exist the same way that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet exist. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you their existence is going to be any different. One more. Chapter 21. Verse 8. Chapter 21, verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, says the second death. This gives you the characteristic of a bunch of these folks down there. Um, When you're talking about the concept of the existence of the wicked, um, It's it's Paul who writes to us, I think, let's turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians. Where is 2 Thessalonians? Right at the 1 Thessalonians, right? 
for Timothy. Second Thessalonians. Um, we've already, we've made reference to this particular passage uh, last week. We want to go back and get just one particular portion of it. Second Thessalonians. Um, chapter nine. When Christ comes back, flaming fire. I'm sorry. Whew. Chapter nine. <laughs> you know what? If y'all hadn't been a good congregation, y'all would just sat there like knots and logs and said whatever. But when I said that, everybody looked at me like, what in the? Chapter one, verse nine. Second Thessalonians, chapter one, verse nine. I'm gonna give my notes to somebody else. Come here and read this, y'all. <laughs> somebody come here and do this for me. Gracious Almighty. Verse 9, these people shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here's this term, destruction. Um, and most people, as I've said before, they think that this term destruction means a non-existence. If I said to you, um, there was a tornado that came through town and blew down a tree in my yard, and the tree fell on my house and destroyed my house. Would you think that when you walked up there, you would see a bare, empty spot and no house? Is that what goes through your mind? If I said to you, I had an automobile accident. Well, how are you doing? I'm fine, but the car was completely destroyed. Does that mean it ceased to exist? No. What does it mean? It means that its function and use is no longer useful anymore. It does not function the way it should function. It's completely useless. So in 1 Corinthians 10, the term destruction uh, is used again. And Paul has this to say. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he's going back and he's reminding us of the problems that Israel had wandering in the wilderness He's warning us against lust, against idolatry, against fornication. But when he starts to warn us against tempting Christ, he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Well, y'all remember that, right? That's Numbers 21, Numbers 22. They started murmuring, complaining against the Lord. The Lord sent fiery serpents amongst them. The serpents bit the people, the people died. Well, in Numbers it says they died. Here it says they were destroyed. So are you telling me that when the serpent bit the person, the person immediately vanished and ceased to exist? That's not the concept that's laid out here for us. The person dies, essentially, is, is what's, laid out, what's laid out here. So it's unreasonable to say that just because we use the word destruction, that we're also using the word annihilation in the sense of ceasing to exist. They really have no purpose anymore. When the wicked get to hell, there's no purpose in their life. And secondly, it's said here that they are destroyed from the presence of the Lord. And this, this I thought was very interesting. Well, you know, when someone talks about well, they're going to fire, and once you set something on fire, anytime you set something on fire, it's, it's automatically consumed, right? Until you read in Exodus, when the Lord spoke to Moses out of 
a burning bush. And Moses turned to see this sight as he said in his own words, this bush that burns but is not consumed. I guess it's entirely possible if the Lord decides to, he can set anything on fire and make it suffer and burn and never be destroyed and never be annihilated. Is that conceivably possible that God could do something like that? Look, this is not that hard, folks. It's really not. I, I think it's a lot harder to deny the Bible than it is to just simply believe what it says here. But also notice this. It says that they are destroyed from the presence of the Lord. You realize that the wicked right now are in the presence of God down here on this earth? They are in the presence of God and they are receiving the benefit of being in the presence of God. Um, one passage to that is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 where it says that God causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. You're at home. We... we mentioned the garden earlier. You've got this garden you're trying to go grow. You're praying to God. Send rain that it may rain on my garden and cause my garden to grow. Guess what? When the rain falls and causes your garden to grow, it also causes you the neighbor's garden to grow as well. Right? The wicked that live on this earth right now, though they hate God, though they say to Him, as in the book of Job, depart from me, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways, are standing in the presence of God right now and receiving the blessing for it and are eternally ungrateful. Because when you go back and you read about those ten plagues that came on Egypt, I think there's a lot of parallels. If you go back and you read, you know, Brother David did a real good job Friday night paralleling the beginning of Genesis with the book of Revelation. Go back and you parallel the... Uh, Deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And you look at God's people being delivered from sin in this life. You'll find a lot of parallels in there. One of them we're fixing to get to in a minute. But you think about those, those multiple plagues that came upon Egypt. How were those plagues stayed? How, how were they stopped? By Pharaoh saying to Moses, Entreat thy God that he stop the plague. Here the wicked Pharaoh is receiving a benefit of being in the presence of God. He's experiencing a reprieve of the torment and the suffering and the plagues brought upon him. But in hell, these people are forever removed from being in the presence of God from the sense of receiving any reprieve, any release, any comfort in their torment. Let me give you another little uh, idea about how about how torment may possibly exist in in hell's world. In our life now, if you're hungry, there's food, right? If you're thirsty, there's drink. If you're hot, there's air conditioning. And if you're cold, there's central heat. If you labor and you're tired, there's rest. 
if you're sick, there's medicine. Even think about this from the wicked standpoint. Even think about this from the standpoint of those who are the most wicked among us. When there's lust among them, what is there? Fornication. Adultery. There's a way to satisfy their lust for a moment for them. If you hate somebody and you're angry against somebody, what's a good way for them to solve their anger? Kill somebody. If you want something that you don't have, that your neighbor's got, just go steal it, right? See, they're finding ways in even amongst themselves to satisfy what bothers them. Doesn't make it right, but they're finding ways to satisfy themselves. You see that? And what I'm, what I'm proposing to you, uh, is that in hell, part of their torment is all of these things still exist, but there's no escape. There's hunger, but there's no food. There's thirst, but there's no water. There's trouble and tribulation, but there's no rest. There's lust, but there's no fornication. There's hate and there's anger, but there's no murder. There's nobody to kill. How do you kill what's already dead? There's covetousness, wanting what you don't have, wanting to be somewhere that you're not. Let me, let, let me think about this. When the church says that young girls should dress modestly, we're mocked. By many people saying, don't tell us how to dress. Besides, this is the 21st century. What's wrong with nudity, y'all bunch of prudes? You've heard that, right? Did y'all watch the Olympics? The International Olympic Committee, well, some of you did, some of you didn't. Here's what happened during the Olympics. I can't, I, the, the country that it happened to just left my mind. But the International Olympic Committee told one of the women's uh, beach volleyball teams, they they find the beach volleyball team for not wearing the skimpy, barely there, next to nothing panties. The girl said, why are you sexualizing the Olympics and making a spectacle out of us? We want to wear pants. If the church tells you to wear pants, we're a bunch of prudes. The National Olympic Committee tells you to dress naked. And you're like, we shouldn't have to be naked to play sport. Did I miss something? Did I miss something in this? Hey, how about this? It's simply just an example of people, number one, saying, don't tell me how to live on either side of the fence. And number two, just wanting what they don't have. The church tells them to be modest. They want to be naked. The world tells them to be naked. They want to be modest. It's just people who aren't happy with what they have, and they always want something different. Hell will be no different. Hell will be filled with a bunch of people who are angry about where they're at and they just want to be somewhere different. And they can. Um, because I'd like for you to notice in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, the Lord lays out here, I think, is a very convincing argument about the existence of both the wicked and the righteous after death. Now, when it comes to the issue of parables, this is always a tricky thing. 
When people look at something called a parable, they have a tendency to dismiss it because they almost treat it as sort of a once upon a time fairy tale. I grew up hearing stories about, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And a lot of people started feeling sorry for Goldilocks and this, that, and the other. Uh, this, this young lady who's wandering in a forest breaks into somebody's house, of which she doesn't belong. She eats their porridge, which she did not cook. And she breaks a bed, which is not hers. And we were supposed to feel sorry for Goldilocks. I feel sorry for the three bears. How about you? I was told the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when I was growing up, right? Here's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Nobody likes him. All the other little reindeer wouldn't let him play reindeer games until they found out he had this bright, shining nose. And Santa Claus said, wow, with your bright, shining nose, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? And then all the other reindeer loved him. In other words, <clears throat> nobody's going to love you until they can get something out of you. Well, nobody likes those little stories now, do they? Uh, that's, and, and so people sometimes approach the parables that way. These are just once upon a time, uh, uh, grim fairy tales, uh, uh, you know, Hans Christian Andersen tales that we tell our children to try and, you know, get them to behave. I'd like for you to consider, though, that whenever Jesus taught in parables, when he told these stories, he never told things that were unreasonable or didn't exist. He didn't talk about, you know, the Cyclops and three-headed monsters. He didn't get over here, you know, into Greek mythology and talk about, you know, these winged flying horses and things like this and hydras with uh, multiplying heads when you cut them off. He didn't talk about stuff like that. He talked about, he talked about things that were common to us. And also, if you'd like to notice that in Luke 16, nowhere in the story of rich man and Lazarus is the word parable ever mentioned. There's nothing in this passage that tells us that this is a parable, a story that Jesus is making up to teach a lesson. I rather suspect that since he's the God of glory and knows all things, if Jesus said there was a rich man, guess what? There was a rich man. Well, I don't know this rich man. Who does this rich man? Where does this rich man live? Really? How tall was he? What color was his hair? How much money did he have? It doesn't matter. Jesus said there was a rich man. There was a rich man. And there was a poor man. There was a beggar that lay at his gates. Jesus always taught parables from everyday common events. And it's very obvious that in Revelation 20 and in this chapter in Luke 16, that when Jesus teaches these stories, teaches these lessons, He is giving us the idea that it is very reasonable to accept the understanding that both the righteous and the wicked remain conscious during their state after death from this life. Notice what, notice what it says here. And... and you know, I asked y'all earlier if you wanted the one hour or the two hour. Because I am just sweeping over a ton of stuff here. We're not even addressing the fact that most people think the term hell in the Bible simply means the grave. In some places it does. In some places it doesn't. When you get outside 
the ranks of the primitive Baptist, when you get outside the ranks of the gospel of grace, people will forever forget that Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. Timothy was not told to divide the error from the truth. He says you take the truth, you rightly divide it. The term salvation, we understand that there are two types of salvation laid out in Scripture. There is eternal salvation secured by Christ. There are salvation, there's salvation here in life, blessings and obedience, let's call it that, temporal salvation, whatever you want to call it, that is secured in discipleship and fellowship to God here. You've got to rightly divide this. Hell is the same way. I realize that there are some places in the Bible that talk about hell being the grave. But there are some places where hell is described, it cannot be the grave. No way, no how. Jesus asked some Pharisees one time, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Well, that's just the grave. There's going to the grave is damnation. You mean when I laid my dear father to rest many years ago, we damned him to hell? Really? When we laid Cenus and, and Howard and, and uh, uh, Sister Joe, uh, George here to, to rest when they passed, we damned them to hell? Is that what people are going for? You see the problem you get into when you play with the Bible like it's a set of tinker toys? Like it's a bunch of Legos for us to just assemble whatever creation we want? You see what a monstrosity you create when you start denying the basic tenets of even English? Let's just put... Hell in the grave here in Luke 16 and see, see what happens. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus. This is verse 20, which laid at his gates full of sores. Verse 21. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. He died, but where's the grave? You know what? For the righteous there is no grave. I mean, I know, actually, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if, if Lazarus was ever buried in the ground. Lazarus was a beggar. Lazarus was a homeless person in first century Jerusalem. Homeless people didn't get buried. I know you got potter's field out there. Some of them got buried in that. Some of them got thrown out here in the city dump and were burned. You ever contemplate, has, has anybody ever contemplated this? I don't think any of these no-hellers, annihilationists, have ever contemplated this. Look at what happens. Lazarus dies and is carried into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torments. So he was buried and in the grave he opened up his eyes. Really? In that, in that casket box. He's laying there in the box looking up. Father Abraham! That's the concept we're getting here? No, how about this? How about he died? And being a rich man, probably had an elaborate casket or maybe a mausoleum or a grand tomb that he was laid to rest in. Rest in peace, dear man. His existence, this situation, goes beyond the pine box to a place where he knows he's at. And he cries out 
and he says to Father Abraham, verse 24, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, why didn't Abraham say to him, relax, son, you're only going to last for about three more seconds? That wasn't the conversation, was it? The rich man knows where he's at. And he's tormented in flame. He's tormented in fire. I don't see how anybody could miss this unless they want to miss it. And as a matter of fact, what happens is this text is so plain. This text is so obvious that when the annihilationists and the no-headers get to it, they have to symbolize everything in the passage. Well, the rich man really represented the Jews. The poor man really represented the Gentiles. And the Gentiles wanted the gospel. And the rich wouldn't give it to them. And God took the gospel from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles. That's a bunch of hogwash. And we'll prove it to you here in just one more verse. That sort of that sort of uh, spiritualizing, well, <clears throat> what did the preacher used to say? Those who often spiritualize, often tell spiritual lies. And they that tell spiritual lies do so because they have no spiritual eyes. Man, isn't that something? I'm going to prove to you here in just one more verse how that ridiculous spiritualizing verse that even a lot of primitive Baptists have come up with way back in the day. Thank God it's not among us anymore. It's just stupid. Listen. Abraham said, this is verse 20, 25, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. This is not time you spent outside the church. This is actual hell. This is actual place of torment. And when you get there, you ain't coming out. So much for the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. That when you get to this holding place of purgatory, what you're really doing down there is you're paying for the rest of your sins that didn't get paid for up here. And you may be there 10 minutes, you may be 10 days or 10 years. Yes, purgatory, this place invented by the Catholic Church, that if you haven't paid for all your sins down here, you get sent to this holding place where you got to work them off. How long? I don't know. Well, how much does each sin cost is what I want to know. I mean, if I murdered somebody, is that a different from lying? If I... If I lied, is that is different from fornicating? If if I, you know, is, are we grading on a scale here? Is it like a dollar a sin, five dollars a sin? And and by the way, if if I'm paying for my sins, who am I working for? And what are they paying me? Because the last time I checked, to have a hellish job, they didn't pay enough to do anything, right? So none of this makes any sense, except for the fact. That it's real. That you have a real man. And a real hell. And a real heaven. 
Because if this is just spiritualized between the Jews and Gentiles, uh, Abraham said, those that are on your side cannot come here. But if you don't have the gospel, you can go get it. Right? I mean, if, you're, if you've been cast out of the church for disobedience, you've been cast out of church for doing something wrong, you can repent and come back into church, right? That doesn't fit here. He says, I'm tormented in this flame. And then he says, verse 27, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Uh, as I, I said a couple of weeks ago, there was a popular athlete who said, if the living knew what the dead knew, they'd all repent and come to Christ. Not true. Because, because this text says, if the living won't hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. They will not be persuaded, though one rose from the dead and one did rise from the dead. He did rise from the dead, many saw it, and they still did not believe. It is not miracles of the mind that convince the dead sinner. It's a work of grace in the heart that changes the mind. Because when you turn to Revelation chapter 9, I'd like for you to notice this. Revelation 9 is an interesting little passage. Uh, Revelation 9, I'll give you two things out of this. Um, in verse 6 says, Revelation 9 verse 6, And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. That's another torment in hell. I told you a while ago, how are you going to kill something that's already dead? Uh, some people get, get so fed up with life that they kill themselves. You'll be in a place where you'll be fed up with it before you even get there, and there's no escape. That's also part of the torment. Notice verse 20. Uh, the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. What happened is, is an angel came down and opened up the bottomless pit, and a bunch of locusts came out and tormented men. And by the way, when you read Revelation 9, the only people tormented are the people of the wicked. I will not offer any other explanation to this chapter other than the fact the torment that is experienced here is tormented by wicked men who worship devils and they're, they're tormented by their devils. They're tormented by their idols that they worship. And you would think if the idols tormented them, they turn from their idolatry, right? That's the whole kind of layout of this passage. You like devils? I give you devils. 200 million of them as a matter of fact. And notice what it says here in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. In hell there is no repentance. 
Preachers fill pulpits all over the world. Warning unsaved people, when you get to hell, you will finally realize how wrong you are. No, they will not. They will know who they are. They will know where they are. And they'll be angry at God that they're there because it's your fault. I was a good person. Don't tell me what I did was wrong. Who are you to judge me? And for all of eternity, they will stand and yell and curse and shake their fist at God. They will never repent. That's also part of their torment. There's no forgiveness for who they are. And for all eternity, they will suffer. The Bible calls those who are in this place also in the book of Jude in a place of blackness of darkness. This is Jude verse uh well let's talk let's go to Jude verse twelve. I'll give you the verse, you give me the chapter this time. Ha Jude verse twelve says, These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead. Don't run over that. Twice dead. Dead in sin and dead in hell. You remember the second death that we talked about? Twice dead. Plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea. Foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars. What is a wandering star? A star that has no purpose. He has no direction. In hell there is no purpose. There is no direction. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The blackness of darkness. What happened in Exodus? Thick darkness came over the land for three days. Nobody left their residence, probably didn't even get out of their bed. A a, a darkness so thick it could be felt. Nobody saw anybody else. It was so dark. Couldn't even put your hand in front of your face. If you don't know what this is like, go down here to the Soda Caverns and have them march you into one of their great ballrooms and then have them turn the lights out. And it won't take you long to lose your mind. Now, now I have a quandary because this is also a flaming fireplace. And so I, I heard a preacher this week say, well, I think the flames are spirit. I think that's symbolic of something else. Because how can you have a flame without light? That's a reasonable question. But have you ever looked at a flame? Flame possesses not just one color, it possesses three colors at least. At the bowl of the flame, it, it burns dark blue because it's the hottest down at the bottom of that bowl. So my question is, if we can light a candle and it burns blue because of how hot it is, can God light hell so hot it turns black? That's a question. I'm not God, so I can't answer that. But then I discovered something this week. I discovered something called black fire. Have y'all ever heard of this? Our street lamps out here are called are, are oftentimes monochromatic light sources. It's a light source that sends out one ray of light, as opposed to you know a flame which is all kind of colors of the light. A monochromatic light source sends out one light spectrum, 
That's it. You can actually buy one of these low-sodium lamps off of Amazon. You could do this experiment on your own. When you turn that light on, turn off every other light, get in a dark place, turn that light on, the only thing you see are things in black and white. So the experiment that this guy did was he had a red tomato and he had an orange uh, extension cord. He turned all these lights off, turned the monochromatic light on, the red tomato turned black, and the orange extension cord turned white. The reality to that is, is in the presence of God, who is a single source of light, things are nothing but black and white. There are no gray areas to God. It's either right or wrong. So this is how in John 5, those that rose to the resurrection of righteousness and everlasting life because they'd done good, and those that rose to the resurrection of everlasting damnation because they'd done bad, it's black and white. Where do those of us who have done both good and bad fit? If Christ died for us, it's all good. Nothing else. So it is entirely possible that in the presence of God for all eternity, hell will be black as it can be because it's in the presence of the light of a divine God. But now how can it be the blackness of darkness? I don't have an answer for that. I'm simply presenting to you great possibilities that it can be both darkness and a raging furnace of fire, of black fire, if God so designs. Because it can be done down here in our little ways of working. If it can be done down here in our little ways of working, what can it be in God's sovereign ways of working? Now, The story of Moses, excuse me, the story of Noah and Lot. For God Himself says, In the days of Noah, it shall be the same thing as the coming of the Son of Man. I think y'all have all read this right. In the days of the coming of the Son of Man shall be as the days of Noah, and it shall be in the days of Lot. If you go back and you study the times of Noah and the times of Lot, God says that's going to parallel the end time. Now, a lot of people will go to the land of Lot and they'll say, Yes, that's what happened. God rained down fire from heaven, but before that, He delivered Lot. So the church was raptured, and everybody that was left behind burned and died. Right? I'm glad that He said the days of Noah and Lot. If He said the days of Lot, I'd have to concede that it's possibly true that there's going to come some great rapture and then the end. He didn't say that. He said the days of Noah and Lot. What happened in the days of Noah? In the days of Noah, God took Noah and his family into the ark. He shut the ark and the water came and the flood came, destroyed them all, and the Bible says took them away. Who was taken away in Noah's day? The wicked were taken away. Who was left behind? Noah was left behind, right? Neither one of these situations then answer the question, oh, do I need to be left behind or not? That's not the question it's answering. The question it's answering is, what happens at the end time? And at the end time, the righteous and the wicked are separated. And they never have anything to do with each other ever again. That God comes down, delivers His righteous people away from the wicked. They are forever separated. And as in Matthew 25, It tells them, depart from me into everlasting torment, 
prepared for the devil and his angels, but unto the righteous come ye, inherit a kingdom prepared for you by my Father from the foundation of the world. I'm not interested in making hell a happy place. I'm not interested in making hell a vacant place or a cool or air-conditioned place. When I pass through neighborhoods and I see somebody in there air-conditioning and reconditioning a home, tearing the roof off and putting a new one on, trying to make it the most pleasant place that there is, I get the idea that he either lives there or he's about to move in. When I start hearing preachers trying to air condition and recondition hell and making the most pleasant place not much hotter than Alabama in August, then I either get the idea that they live there or they plan to move in. I neither plan to live there nor ever move in. So I don't care how hot hell is. I don't care how miserable it is. I don't care how solitary it is. Oh, and by the way, I cannot forget this. I realize I'm long after, but I started 10 minutes after. So bear with me. Listen to this. Talking about that fire and flame a while ago, right? Flame right here. Lights. It burns upwards, correct? It flows up. Only in a state of gravity. Only in a state of gravity does a flame act the way it does down here in this life. If you were to take a flame and let it loose in a zero gravity atmosphere, do you know what it does? It burns an exact sphere. It burns an exact sphere around whatever is burning. A complete circle. Have you ever known that the Bible calls a place the bottomless pit? Now, I've wondered, I, I talked with Brother David about this weekend, you know, or is, is hell and the bottomless pit the same place? Neither one of us came up with a definitive answer. It is possible that it's the bottomless pit. Or it's possible I'm mistaken. If it is a bottomless pit, you know what a bottomless pit is? It, it, it's, it's, it's a vacuum place, really, where you've got gravity pushing down from the top and you've got gravity pushing up from the bottom. And whatever's in this is just sort of suspended in the middle of it. No sure footing. You've seen these astronauts out here in zero gravity. There's no sure footing for anything that they do. They just kind of twist and turn. Can you imagine being in an eternal hell, twisting and turning, no sure place to put your foot, nothing to grab onto, no place of stability? Boy, doesn't that just terrify you now? And you're on fire. There's no release from the fire because you're the one that's burning. And the fire burns in a complete circle where you are. Everywhere. And whatever you hit or touch, which is another person that you don't realize there, then wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine the wailing and gnashing of teeth? Some of us have been in hospitals before hearing people suffer now from just small things here in life. Can you imagine a million people, a hundred million people, a billion people suffering for all eternity, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that you would hear down there? Talk about torment. I have no intent to make hell cool or lonely. I have every intent to light it as hot as it can be because the Bible says that He has delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus didn't come out down here and die to deliver us from some vacation home. He didn't come down here and die and deliver us from unconscious, unexistence. 
or of unconscious nothingness. He came down here to deliver us from a real place, a hateful place, a horrible place, a destructive place, a place of misery, a place of no hope, a place of no pasture, and deliver us right into the kingdom of Almighty God. I don't see how other people preach through Revelation 20. I really don't. If you don't have the hope that God has given us, that salvation is sure for you because of the blood of Christ, how does anyone constantly guessing, constantly doubting, constantly not knowing if they've done enough, what a great blessing God has given us to know what we know and to be able to rejoice in these great truths that eternity for the righteous will be joys everlasting. Thank you for your good and patient attention this morning.